Good afternoon, church. Our passage for today can be found on page four of the New Testament in your pew Bibles. It'll be Matthew 5, verses 27 through 32. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I just had the thought that one of the reasons why we here at Risen Hope are committed to what we call expository preaching, preaching through books of the Bible from start to finish, is that it allows God's Word to dictate to us what we preach about, rather than us picking and choosing what we preach about. I can assure you that I would never, not in a hundred years, choose to preach on this text. But given that I am called as a servant of God and of the Word of God, and given that we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and correction and training in righteousness, we are committed to preaching the whole counsel of God. And so we come to this text this morning. I'm reminded of the description I heard one time of a definition, actually, of evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And as I come to this text, I feel like one beggar telling other beggars where to find grace, where to find truth. Uh, I need God's help. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you please come? We are all beggars. Needy, desperately needy. Fill us with your truth. Transform us by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our message this afternoon is the second of two in an exposition of the text that was just read in your hearing. Last week we saw that according to Jesus, it matters that you are sitting not just on the outside, but on the inside, if you'll remember that illustration. Uh, child resistant to his father's 
command to sit down, finally sits down upon the threat of punishment, saying, I'm sitting on the outside, but not on the inside, is very like many of us, indeed very like all of us, at many times in our lives, in our relationship with God, where we are sitting on the outside, but not on the inside. We are doing the right things externally, but not internally. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is telling us that it matters that we sit on the inside as well as the outside. It is not enough in the previous section of this sermon. It's not enough that we don't murder someone. We cannot hate them. We cannot call them names. We cannot malign them or slander or demean them without committing a form of murder in our hearts. Likewise, it is not enough in the text in front of us It is not enough that we don't actually crawl into bed with someone who is not our spouse. We must not even entertain the idea of doing so or desire for it. There is adultery guilt both in doing adultery and in wanting adultery. God calls us time and again in His Word, as we saw last week, and He calls us with sober commands, and He calls us with dire warnings to sexual purity in an impure world. Now you recognize why this is such a hard topic to talk about, why this is no fun. Even just to talk about what it's talking about is hard to do, but this is what God calls us to. Biblically defined in this text, sexual purity includes, or sexual impurity, includes any kind of intentional sexual desire or interest or pursuit or indulgence outside of a one-man-with-one-woman covenanted marriage relationship for life. That forbids premarital sex. That forbids any and all visual stimuli that we can avoid and mental fantasies that we might create. It forbids flirtations between married men or women and others who are not their spouse. It forbids every expression of any of these that might exist from pornography to child abuse to one-night stands to hooking up, name it. God's Word forbids it. It even forbids, according to verses 31 and 32, getting out of a marriage through a biblically illegitimate divorce so that you can feel free to hook up with somebody else. I know, again, as I said last week, but I just need to reinforce it here. Um, When the topic of divorce is brought up, There are so many nuances to it. There are so many difficult questions. There are so many complexities. There are so many individual individual circumstances that from the pulpit, there is no way that I can address all of those. There's no way that I can counsel you from here. And there are certain 
circumstances, particularly if a wife or mom or children are in danger, that that when there are actions, legal actions, marital actions, moral actions that must be engaged to protect the woman and to protect the children. Please know we know that, we understand that, we believe that, we will stand with, we do stand with, and will stand with women and children who are subjected to abuse. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Just so you know, what he's talking about here is when someone pursues a divorce so that they can get hooked up with somebody else. That, Jesus says, is adultery. And Jesus says these things with intense solemnity. His language, look at the language of verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Notice the double use of the word throw. Those who do not tear out their eye, the eye of temptation, and throw it away, will be thrown away by God. Do you see it? Jesus says that. I tremble to say it. I tremble to think it. Either throw your lusting eye away or God will throw you away. Thinking about this this week, I, my head fills up with tears. My heart gets burdened almost beyond words. I think about this generation. I think about the world and the culture in which we live where it is absolutely, pervasively, thoroughly sex-crazed. And I think about our young people and I think about our older folks and I, and I think of the the burden and battle for purity in an impure world. Oh, my friends, please hear me. There's, there's no self-righteousness coming through here. Uh, we are in this battle together. And we are in this battle at a time in an age of unprecedented temptations and unprecedented opportunity to sin. It is everywhere all the time. Everywhere all the time. And Jesus is saying to us, dear ones, dear children, brothers and sisters of mine, Jesus says, you must deal decisively with these things. You must deal decisively with these things. Or if you don't, Jesus says that he will deal decisively with us. What is going on in our secret places is going to be a matter of judgment day exposure. Tony Renke has written a book called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. We have copies of it in the book nook. We also have copies of an individual chapter from that book along with Randy Alcorn's book, The Purity Principle, that we have free for you as you leave today. Please get a copy of the chapter and of Randy Alcorn's book. But in that chapter, Tony Renke argues 
that our phone makes us comfortable with secret vices. And he writes, One day, every sinner who has lived in so-called anonymous sin will stand before God. There is no such thing as anonymity. It is only a matter of time. Every lurid detail, sleazy fantasy, lazy word, and idle click will be broadcast in the court of the Creator. All of the things done in secrecy and darkness will be brought into the light and every intent of the heart will be disclosed. It will be the ultimate humiliation. It will be the ultimate exposing of our heart's intents. It will spark the ultimate panic. It will cause the ultimate knot in the soul and the ultimate desire to run and hide and die from the guilt and shame of being exposed. Every attempt to bleach wash our digital or actual footprint is vain. Nothing you have ever done on your phone or computer or life or ever will do is secret. Eternal regret will follow forever for private smartphone clicks happening right now. Before God, our browsing history remains a perfect record of our sin and shame unless He shows mercy. Before His omniscient, all-knowing eyes, our browsing history can be washed clean only with the blood of Christ. Every time we make a late-night rendezvous with the blue-tinted screen, every lingering look at a man or a woman, every exploitation of a man or abuse of a child, however much one may think he's getting away with it, it will be revealed. Every look and every touch and every indulgence and compromise and sin will be made known. Sexual sin is so serious in how it damages relationships and marriage. It is so serious in how it ruins children's lives. It is so devastating to our character. It is so grievous to God and to His character. It is so serious that Jesus says, either deal with it or I will deal with you. Either deal with it or I will deal with you. Oh, it begs the question. Oh, Lord, how do we deal with it? Lord, how, how do we deal with this? What is the remedy for sexual sin? I began to give you some answers last week. The answers are first, repent before the holy law of Christ. Bow your knee. Blessed are those who mourn their sins. Repent of your sins. Own it. Don't hide. Don't cover. Don't run. Don't excuse. Don't rationalize. Don't justify. Own it. Confess it. And repent of it. But then do that trusting in the forgiving mercy of Christ. Blessed are those who mourn their sins for they will be comforted. That is the comfort of forgiveness. That is the comfort of mercy. Do not think. Some of you are sitting here this afternoon thinking, my sin is too dark. My sin is too great. My darkness is too pervasive in my soul for God to forgive. No, do not think that. 
God's grace is greater than all our sin. One man has said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Repent before the holy law of Christ. Trust in the forgiving mercy of Christ. And be confident in the transforming power of Christ. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who hunger and thirst for purity, those who hunger and thirst to be done with sin will one day be done with sin. Will one day sin no more. And between now and then, there will be, as one man puts it, a long, long journey in the right direction. A long, long journey in the right direction. God, by His grace, who has begun a good work in you, dear believing child of God, He will continue that work and continue that work and continue that work and complete that work. The words of the old hymn I grew up singing, Then we shall be where we would be. Then we shall be what we should be. Things that are not now nor could be soon shall be our own. Then we shall be where we would be. Then we shall be what we should be. On that day when we see King Jesus, all the remaining impurities and defilements and pollutions of our flesh will fall off and will be seen or experienced no more. But between now and then, between now and then, how do we fight the good fight? How do we overcome more and more by the transforming grace of God? The answer, the fourth answer for today is we need to be obedient to the radical command excuse me, of Christ. We must be obedient to the radical command of Christ. What's the radical command of Christ in this text? If your eye offend you, cut it out. If your hand offend you, cut it off. Throw them away from you. Now I assure you, Jesus does not mean for us to take that literally. If that were the case, all you would see standing in front of you right now would be maybe my little toe. I don't know. What, there would be nothing left. That is not what Jesus has in mind. This is a use, a literary use of hyperbole, exaggeration in order to make a point. But the point can't be exaggerated. The point is, you should stop at nothing to get rid of sexual sin in your life. There should be nothing you cherish. There should be nothing you watch. There should be nothing you own. There should be nowhere you go that is more precious to you than purity is. And Jesus says, if your eye offends you, cut it off. If your hand offends you, 
cut it off. This raises a huge question for us, friends. How serious are we about this? Let's get real here. How serious are we? How serious are we? Andy uh, Randy Alcorn. Andy Ralcorn. (laughs) Randy Alcorn, in his book, uses the illustration of... uh, He's talking about a young man in his office who is mad at God because God didn't keep him from sexual sin. But Randy Alcorn was fully aware that this young man had gotten as close to sin as was possible, all the while praying that God somehow would deliver him from it. And Mr. Alcorn, sitting at a desk, started pushing a book toward the edge of the desk he kept pushing it, and the young man was figuring out, trying to figure out what he was doing, and, and he pushed it right off the edge, and boom, it fell. The point he was trying to make to this young man was, you can't get close to it. Gravity will do what gravity does. The same is true, my friends, with sexual temptation. You cannot get close to it. For gravity will do what gravity does. There will be a fall. And indeed, brothers and sisters, if you're in a pattern of getting as close to it as possible, you've already fallen. You're already fallen. So how do we stay away? How, how, do, we, how do we gain some victory? Can I give you as quickly as possible, seven decisive steps that we can take to do radical surgery, the radical surgery needed to kill impurity and awaken purity in our hearts and lives. These are seven decisive steps. Step number one, know yourself. Know yourself. I get this from what Jesus says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize in themselves that they are spiritually poor. They know themselves. They know themselves to be in an impoverished state. The poor in spirit know that they are guilty of many sins and capable of all sins. The poor in spirit do not say things like, how could they ever do that? I could never do that. Or that is so disgusting. We, we need to realize that one reason so much sexual sin gets committed so often is because so many people think that they could and would never commit it. I would never do that. You ever said that? I would never go there. I'd never watch that. I'm a better person than that. Oh, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. If you think you are above sexual sin, if you think you can handle sexual temptations, or that you're better than that, you are vulnerable. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Know yourself. Number two, keep your head. Keep your head. The, the word that Jesus uses here in Matthew 5 for lustful intent, it's actually made up of, of two Greek words. 
One meaning desire and the other one meaning upon or over. And it, the idea is that there is a desire that is, either that there is a desire that is over us, it's dominating us, or it's a desire that is fixed upon an object. And it's talking about being in a condition where desire, you're fixated on desire. You're locked into the desire. And when that happens, it bypasses the mind. It bypasses the brain. It moves from, oh, this is something I think I want, to this is something I must have. And it skips over the brain. It skips over the head. It's what James is talking about when he says each person is tempted when he is lured or enticed by his own desire. He is lured. The word means to be drawn out. It's like, it's like an animal that's, that's in a cave and they set some bait to kind of draw it out. And the, the impulse, the hunger overwhelms the brain at that point. And, and the hunger takes over. Lust does that to us. Proverbs 5 likens it to being intoxicated. It's when, it's when we're no longer thinking straight. It, it, it makes us forget who we are. It makes us forget whose we are. It makes us forget who He is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, when lust takes control at that moment, God loses all reality. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but forgetfulness of God. This is the way it works. Lust blurs the mind, fogs up the brain, obscures the thought. It has a way of making whatever's right in front of us feel like the reality and God fades into non-reality. So that when we sit in front of the television, we don't even realize that we, we have what is that piece of equipment right in front of us or the telephone in our pocket, the cell phone. We don't even realize it's bait. We don't even realize that at the other end of the line attached to that bait, there is a, there's a fishing pole made in hell. We don't, we don't even realize. We're, we're blind to it. And so we sit and we watch and slowly it just dulls our minds. We lose our objectivity. We, we forget God. We need to keep our head we need to keep our minds working. First Peter, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Romans 1, 12 and verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desires. Keep your head. Keep your head. Third, guard the gates. Guard the gates. When Jesus refers to the eye in Matthew chapter 5, he is identifying the primary gateway through which temptation enters our lives. Through which temptation comes and entices us. 
So let's talk about the obvious here. The horrific, soul-impoverishing way that the internet and entertainment appeal to and feed the lusts that are within us through the eye gate of our lives. There's no getting around this, my friends. There will be no purity except at the cost of massive self-denial. There will be no purity except at the cost of massive self-denial. When temptation comes our way, when it comes toward our eyes, we need to exercise eye control. That, that begins with elevating our eyes, engaging people's faces, not their bodies. Elevating our eyes. And then it moves to all the ways that our lusts are fed through the eye gate. Movies, television, novels, so-called art, flirtation at the coffee spot, all the immodesties and immoralities of Hollywood, clubs we go to, beaches we frequent, magazines we look at, the route you take coming home from work. Do you go by the porn shop or do you go five miles out of your way to avoid it? The banter and language and humor and edgy climate that we indulge. Jesus says to us, if your eye offends you, cut it out. In short, it means putting it real blunt. If your TV is a constant, consistent source of temptation for you, the best thing you can do is grab a hammer. If your internet use leads you to places you cannot you dare not, you must not go, then the best thing you can do is get rid of it. Get rid of it. That's what Jesus is saying. Paul says in Romans 12, make no provision for the lust of the flesh. None. None. You know, you know what happens, folks, to us? We say we want to kill sin, but then we go on feeding sin. You cannot kill what you're continuing to feed. What are we willing to change? We must guard the eye gates diligently. Fourth, dispel the myths. Dispel the myths. There's one thing Jesus is doing here in this text is he's, he's dispelling the myths. He is, he is dispelling the lies of hell. He, for example, he's dispelling the myth that so long as I don't sleep with someone, it's okay. He's dispelling the myth that so long as I don't actually touch, there is no harm. He's dispelling the myth that there is a, such a thing as innocent indulgence and innocuous lust. He's dispelling the myth that God will understand and look the other way. He is dispelling the myth that so long as I am divorced or nearly so, this affair is okay. He is dispelling the myths one after another. And the myths line up. There are, there are dozens of lies we believe. 
They have to be dispelled by the truth. We lie and say, I don't have a problem here. I can handle this. This is art, not porn. This is dance, not eroticism. I'm just into the human body, not lust. Folks, there's a reason why God made Adam and Eve clothes. This won't hurt anyone. In my case, it's okay. God would want me to be happy. God doesn't mind. If he didn't want me to enjoy this, he wouldn't have made me this way or he would stop me. This is natural, so it must be okay. There's no harm in looking. No one will get hurt. The myths just line up, don't they? They just line up. We dispel one, another one just takes the place of the one before. Unless we aggressively counter the lies that hell sends our ways and believe the truth that God reveals, we will never kill sin before it kills us. Number five, train for godliness. Train for godliness. What I mean by this is we need to give ourselves to the spiritual disciplines that will train us and strengthen our souls to do battle with sin and defeat it. We can, we can learn from the context of Matthew 5. What comes before Matthew 5? Matthew 4. <laughs> All right. I was, just, I was waiting for somebody to help me out there. But what goes on in Matthew 4? The temptation of Christ. The temptation of Christ, by the way, helps us in two ways. Number one, because he was tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin, he is a good high priest who knows our weakness, who knows temptation personally in his own experience. So he prays for us that we will have the grace we need in our time of trial, in our time of temptation. Matthew 4 and the reality that Christ went through temptation to its depth, to the worst and most powerful that could be experienced, is comfort for us when we get to chapter 5. We have a high priest, and he's praying for us. And His grace will be sufficient for us. But the temptation of Christ also serves us because it gives us a model of how to face temptation ourselves. And when I look back at Matthew 4, here's what I see. I see Jesus getting baptized. I see Jesus fasting and praying. I see Jesus going to synagogue. And I see Jesus quoting scripture that he's cherished in his heart. What are those things, those actions? Those are what we call spiritual disciplines. Those are the exercises of the soul that strengthen us, that revive us, that fill us, that, that give us the, the wisdom and the discernment and the ability to resist temptation. If you are not training, in Paul's words from 1 Timothy, if you're not training yourself for the purpose of godliness, when temptation comes, you will not be godly. But if you give yourself 
church. Being here and hearing the word preached and singing with God's people and fellowshipping with God's people. If you fast, taking times where you renounce food or maybe television or maybe internet or something else that you just need to get away from so that you can focus on God. If you practice prayer and if you do what Jesus did in Matthew 4, if you so let the word of Christ dwell in you, you have the word of God cherished in your heart. How will a young man keep his way pure, David asks, by taking heed to your word. I will cherish, I will guard your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Folks, there is no replacement for prayer. There is no replacement for the Word. There is no replacement for the church. There is no replacement for these, what we call the means of grace. These, these are the ways that God's grace comes into us and changes us and strengthens us so that when temptation comes, we've got the weapons already in our hands. We've, we're ready. We are ready by the grace of God. We must, we must train for godliness. Number six, strengthen the cord. Strengthen the cord. I'm talking here about the cord of fellowship. I was struck when we were back in Matthew 4. It wasn't enough time in my message back then to make this point, but I was struck by the fact that as soon as Jesus began his earthly ministry, he started calling disciples and forming them into a church. That he gathered his followers together. He called individuals into community. Later in chapter 10, he will send his disciples out into the world two by two. In chapter 16, he says, I will build my church. And then in Matthew 26, in his darkest hour of need, what does Jesus ask his disciples? Come, watch with me. Because even Jesus longed for fellowship in the dark hours of temptation. Even Jesus longed for it. Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And though a man or a temptation might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him or it. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. In a world, folks, in a world of unceasing, pervasive temptation, we need to strengthen the cord. We need fellowship. This is why community groups matter so much. You cannot survive the temptations without fellowship. You cannot be strong. We need to renounce. There's, there's this thing called, you know, we can call it Lone Ranger 
faith. It's, I can do this on my own. That's, that's an eye we need to pluck out. That's, that's a hand we need to cut off. You need the person sitting beside you. You need the people in your community group. Brothers, sisters, we need one another. Recently, I went on a trip and I knew I was going to be away for three nights in a hotel. I emailed a number of my brothers in the Lord. I said, guys, pray for me. Me alone in a hotel room with a television is peril. Pray for me and hold me accountable. Ask me how I did. Ask me how I'm doing. I need fellowship. We need each other. You know, the thing about this is that we, we, need, we need accountability and we need responsibility. There's, there's something about fellowship that brings accountability into our life. That is, we give other people the right to ask us how we're doing and to press the point and to, to move back beyond our quick and easy lies. We need accountability, but we also need responsibility. And what I mean by that is we need to realize that if I sin, I will cause someone else to sin. If I fall, my younger brother in the faith will fall. We need the kind of fellowship that makes us accountable and responsible, that we we are accountable to, we are responsible for, we are doing this together, we cannot survive this alone. So, In our community groups, brothers and sisters, don't mess around with this. Go for it. Be open. Be honest. Be transparent. Be real. Be authentic. Be consistent. Don't miss it. You, if you think you can do without it, you're already being tempted away from the truth. If you think you don't need it, you already need it. You already need it. Strengthen the cord. And finally, switch your affections. Switch your affections. Again, if we go back to chapter 4, Jesus overcame his temptations because, first of all, he trusted in the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the Word of God. And he overcame temptations because he knew that there was only one whom he should worship and serve. His heart was completely in love with and devoted to his Father. And when you have a heart that is in love with and devoted to the Father, your heart will not want to sin. The more the love of Christ is in us, His love for us and our love for Him, the more the love of Christ is filling our hearts, the less sin will fill our hearts. The best way to overcome temptation is not to fight temptation. The best way to overcome temptation to sin is to fall in love with the Savior. The best way to weaken lust is to grow strong in faith. The best way to weaken temptation is to go strong in affection for Jesus. Back in, back in New Jersey, we had, these, we had a zillion oak trees, and, and um, there were some of the oak trees that didn't lose their leaves until the spring. And they, so you get all this dead stuff just hanging on. 
all winter long. Then in the springtime, the life, the new leaves would push and the old leaves would fall off. As the, as the new life came, the old life fell away. As, as the green emerged, the brown and the dead and the ugly disappeared. Very similar to when a young man finds that girl who is the love of his life, for life. What happens to all of his previous loves? He forgets them. Because there is nothing so powerful as a new affection. There's nothing so powerful as a new love. Folks, here's how to gain more and more victory over sexual sin and every temptation that comes your way. Fall more and more in love with Christ. And His grace will flow into you. His grace will flow through you. His grace will weaken the temptations. And you will will find that your love for Christ will produce in you this longing for holiness. And this hatred of sin. You're still going to sin. And you're still going to fall. Ah, but the love of Christ, His for you and yours for Him, will constrain you and move you forward and give you grace to keep on keeping on. This is how we do it, one day at a time. Don't worry about whether or not you can do this for the rest of your life. Think only about whether you, by God's grace, can do this today. Because you can My grace is sufficient for you. Don't worry about tomorrow, Jesus will say later on in Matthew 6. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough problems of its own. Deal with today's temptation with these decisive steps and watch what God does in your life. Oh, Lord, would you please so work in us, so work in us, The temptation will lose its power. Grace will triumph. Father, help us as individuals. Help us as brothers and sisters. Help us as members of this church. Help your church everywhere it is in this sin-obsessed world. Help your people to be a pure and holy people, not for our own praise, but for the glory of the one who has made us new and is making us new every day. We ask, O Lord, for your glory, in Jesus' name.